We'll go ahead and open back up to Matthew 25, and as always, we bailed you out this morning. If you forgot your copy of God's Word, just flip the bulletin over. It's right there on the back. And I'd like to begin our time this morning by telling you about a young lady named Katie Davis. Uh, Katie Davis was a young lady that basically was, um, she had the kind of life that every American girl dreams of. She's popular in high school. She was her senior class president. She's homecoming queen. Um, She had a yellow convertible. She was dating the love of her life, and she planned to study nursing when she got out of high school. So her whole life was pretty much mapped out, and it was awesome. But all that changed um, during Christmas break in 2006 when uh, the 18-year-old Katie Davis went on a mission trip for the first time to the country of Uganda. And she spent, basically, I've got a picture over there, she spent three weeks there just seeing the need and um, just this country that had been ravished by AIDS and the orphans and the poverty. And uh, it just blew her away. I mean, it was a tremendously emotional experience, as you can expect. And so when she came back home, she had this huge burden for the country of Uganda. And uh, she wanted to go back and tell them about Jesus. And so she began to tell her parents, listen, I, I don't want to do the college thing. I want to go back and do the Uganda thing. I want to be a missionary there. And her parents obviously were sort of like, take it easy, you're 18, let's not get too excited, let's not jump the gun. But she kept pleading and pleading and pleading until they finally gave in. They said this, they said, okay, make you a deal. You can go for one year, but then after a year, you come back, you do the college American dream thing. And in their minds, they probably thought, like most parents do, they thought, you know what, it's an excited teenager. She'll go for a year, she'll see it's a lot harder than she thinks it is. And then she'll come back and she'll get it out of her system. That was their reasoning. But Katie jumped headlong into ministry in Uganda. And she signed up for a year-long commitment to teach English in a small village called Jinja. I think it's pronounced Jinja. So when she arrived for her first day of school, they showed her to her quarters. It was this huge barn. And she was going to teach English to these kids in Jinja. She walks in. There's 150 kids in the barn. One five zero, you know. You think about the student to teacher ratio there. One to one hundred and fifty, right? It's amazing. And so she's immediately overcome by just the the sheer need of Uganda. In fact, one night in January of two thousand and eight, there was this terrible storm that broke out, and a mud hut collapsed on three small children. They were rushed to the local hospital. And Katie rushes to the hospital. She hears what happens, what, what happened. She rushes there, and she, she meets a nine-year-old girl named Agnes. And she's, she's like, okay, this girl's been injured. This hut has fallen upon her. So Katie says, I'm going to find Agnes's parents. So she goes around town. She starts asking questions. She finds out this nine-year-old girl, Agnes, has no parents. Nobody. Her father had died, I guess, a few years before that. Her mother had died long before that. This nine-year-old little girl named Agnes was taking care of not only herself, but her two younger sisters in this mud hut all alone. And it had fallen upon them. And so Katie, actually, she adopted these three girls and brought them home. She thought it was a whole lot better to take care of them than just to push them into an already overcrowded orphanage somewhere in Uganda. And so she became a foster parent to these three girls. She got a bigger place, a bigger apartment in Uganda. She provided for them. She spent a whole year like this, 
entrenched in Uganda. And then after her year was up, her heart was torn in pieces because, listen, it was time for her to go back. She'd given her word. And out of honor to her mom and dad, she actually, she got on a plane, she came back to America, but she was totally discontent. You know, you put yourself in her shoes, you go over to Uganda for a year, you're taking care of, of AIDS, orphans, and then all of a sudden when you come back to America, like just hanging out at the Gap and, you know, checking Instagram every 30 seconds, it's kind of boring. I mean, it's kind of like, I can do that or I can do this. It's kind of like, this is kind of like so trivial. She had this, this discontent all of a sudden because she saw the great need in Uganda. And in Katie's own words, she said this, she said, quote, I quit my life. I quit college. I quit cute designer clothes. I quit my little yellow convertible. I quit my boyfriend. I no longer have all the things the world says are important. Her heart was broken for this country. And so she pled with her parents until they finally said, okay, you can go back. You're you're not into the whole American dream thing. She went back. She since adopted 10 other young ladies. She's married today. She's got 13 adopted children of her own, right? And they live in Uganda. They have a thriving ministry there, Katie Davis and her husband. It's an amazing story about what one Christian can accomplish. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Does Katie Davis sound like someone that's sort of like volatile and unstable to you? Does this sound like the story of perhaps a teenager who's just overexcited and you know, jump the gun on the whole Christian life? I mean, does this sound like someone who's taking unnecessary risks to you? And it shouldn't. The reason I ask that question is because it shouldn't. Because this is, according to Jesus, the normal Christian life. It doesn't mean that we're all called to go to another country, but the normal, everyday Christian life is a life that involves taking risks for the kingdom of God. True biblical faith, genuine saving faith, always bears the fruit of taking radical risks in obedience to serve our Heavenly Father. That's what genuine faith looks like, and that's exactly what our text is teaching us this morning in Matthew chapter 25. And that's why we're starting a brand new series this morning called Don't Waste Your Gifts. And I just want to share my heart with you and Tommy's heart with you this morning. You know, something that Tommy and I always talk about in the office is we are so aware that churches over time tend to lose their focus on what's important and what they're called to do. You know, a lot of churches, they start off well, they're focused on the Great Commission, they're focused on making disciples because it's a survival instinct. You have to share your faith, otherwise you die as a church plant. But once people start coming and once your ministry starts to take root, it's so easy to lose your focus on what God has called you to do and get wrapped up in secondary matters. And so Tommy and I are just, we're dogmatic, we're vigilant. We encourage each other. We're like, we have to keep Grace Life on track to fulfill the Great Commission. And so with that in mind, we're starting a brand new series this morning called Don't Waste Your Gifts. And we're going to remind ourselves what the normal Christian life is intended to look like. We're going to remind ourselves over the next four weeks of what a radical missionary lifestyle that we are called to as Christians looks like. And we're going to begin our series this morning by looking at the fact that that Jesus himself says, the normal Christian life is a life of taking risks. 
That's where verse 14 starts. Go ahead and look at verse 14 again. Jesus says this, verse 14, for it, and he's referring there to the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent. Each person according to their own ability, according to their skill set. And he went on his journey, verse 16, immediately the one who had received five talents went out and traded with them and gained five more. 17, in the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Stop right there. Jesus introduces this parable about a master that has three slaves, three servants, all right? Master gives each of his slaves a talent or talents. Now, a talent in biblical days was, it wasn't like, you know, whistling and yo-yoing or anything. A talent was money. A talent was actually $1,000 in modern-day currency. So a talent is a grand. First servant, he gets five grand. Second servant, two grand. Last servant, one grand. And verse 16 says, the first two servants, they ran out immediately, and they did business. Literally, other translations say, they traded with them and employed them in business. They invested their money. They went out and wheeled and dealed, and they made a profit. But the third servant was a whole lot more cautious. In fact, we have a, we have a diagram here. The third servant gets his one talent, runs out in his backyard, digs a hole and buries it. You know, probably alongside some ammo and some dried food, right? You know people like this. They have the doomsday prepper approach to ministry and life, right? It's everything's, <laughs> don't want to get too risky here with the Christian life. Let's bury this talent. This guy's risk averse. Verse 19 says this. Now, after a long time, underline that phrase, after a long time. This is very, very important. Jesus tells three parables in Matthews 24 and 25. All three parables, Jesus says the master delays before he comes back. Jesus is telling us specifically the master is going to wait a long, long time before he comes back. And so Jesus is making clear to everybody that the master gave his servants plenty of time to make a profit. This wasn't like this high-pressure game where on Monday morning Jesus shows up and he's like, here, Here's five talents, here's two, here's one. By Friday, 5 p.m., I want to see some profits. It's not what he does. He gives them a long time to give a good return on the investment. And listen, just FYI, go ahead and write in the margin of your Bible, right between verses 18 and 19 is where I live my life. That's where we all live right now is in the white space between verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 25. That's this life. The master has gone away. He's coming back in the future, and he's coming back for a people that are profitable, and he's going to wait for a long time. He's going to give us plenty of time. And again, he's given us these talents to be productive for his kingdom. Now, just not, not to pigeonhole this sermon specifically about money, a talent can be more than money. Talent can be anything God's given you to steward for his kingdom. You know, a talent could be your spiritual gifts. A talent could be your time, could be your energy, could be your strengths. Your, your talents that God has given you 
are, are basically your very life. Everything's been given to you to be a steward by God, and we're called to be profitable with the talents God's given us. And he's coming back one day for a profitable people. In fact, verse 20 talks about what's going to happen when the master comes back. Look in verse 20. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you gave me five, I made five. Verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, you gave me two, I made two more. He says the same thing, well done, good and faithful slave, you are faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master, right? Verse 24, though, and the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, master, I knew you were a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Let's hit the pause button for a second here. This is very, very important. You know, I want you to notice something. This third servant, he he didn't squander his talent. He didn't blow it on like money. Or excuse me, that's redundant. Blow blow your talent on money. He, He didn't blow his money on like booze. He didn't gamble it away in Vegas. He didn't blow it on prostitutes. You know, this servant did not just like squander the money he was given. It's it's not like the movie Dumb and Dumber. I'm always looking for a way to work a Dumb and Dumber quote in, but it wasn't like Dumb and Dumber where Harry and Lloyd start off with a briefcase full of a million bucks, and by the end of the movie, it's full of IOUs because they've blown everything. It wasn't like that at all. This servant gave back to his master exactly how much he had been given. One talent. And he says, here you go. You gave me one. Here's your one back. Have what you deserve. That's the situation that we see here. And so this last servant protected and preserved his master's money. So the first servants, they run out. They do business. They employ them in trade. But by employing them in trading and investing, they ran the risk of losing their money. So the first two servants took a risk for God. They risk their talents by trading with them. The last servant doesn't do that. He buries his talent, does the safest thing he can think of, and when the master comes back, he says, here you go, give me a talent, there's your talent back. And listen, Jesus has a very sobering message for all of us. For those of us that are thinking about wasting the gifts that he's given us and not doing anything with them, Jesus has a very sobering message. He says this, call before you dig. You gotta call before you dig. Seriously, look at verse 26. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Listen to this. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. Goodness. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance from the one who does not have Even what he does have shall be taken away. And here's a very scary verse, verse 30. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. Now this parable, very sobering. The reason Jesus says, call before you dig, is this. That servant that was not profitable at all was actually, the Bible says, thrown into hell. 
That's what the phrase outer darkness refers to. It's a synonym in the Bible for hell. Hell is a real place. It's forever. It's, it's everlasting torment. It's extremely scary to think about a place called hell. And this third servant was thrown into hell. And, and I realize, I get it. Some of y'all are like, I, I just, this is the part of the Bible you're thinking I have such a hard time with. You're thinking, what in the world did this guy do that was so bad that Jesus came back and said, you know what, outer darkness for you. What, what could possibly be so bad about this servant that would deserve being thrown into hell forever? And the explanation that we see from this text is very clear. The answer is this, he never, he never did anything with the talent God had given him with the gifts God had given them. And, and I realize some people, they, they hear that, and they object, and they think, well, that, that sounds awfully legalistic to me. I thought we were saved by faith, not by our works. How in the world could you say that Jesus is going to come back and throw a guy into hell because he, he, he didn't have any profits with his talents? That sounds like salvation by works. Listen, friends, here, here's the difference. We are saved by faith and faith alone. We teach that clearly here at Grace Life. We are saved by faith and faith alone. But genuine faith never remains alone. It never remains alone. Martin Luther said it this way. We're saved by faith alone, but true faith never stays that way. It never remains alone. It's always followed by the fruit of good works. And a very simple equation to kind of like distinguish legalism from faith is this. If you say faith plus works equals salvation, that's legalism. But genuine saving faith always produces both salvation and good works. Good works are always the fruit of genuine saving faith. And that's because whenever you are united with Christ through faith in the gospel, God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. You have new inclinations. You have a new heart, the Bible says. And that new heart is addicted to obedience. It doesn't mean you always obey. It means your desire is to please God, to serve others. And it's impossible to put your faith in Christ and not bear fruit, the Bible says. It's impossible. It's impossible. And that's why the Bible says faith without works is dead. That's what it says. Because it's impossible to put your faith in Christ and not bear fruit in this life. Now, with that said, every person's fruit-bearing potential is going to be different. This is where the church misses it so often, okay? We're not all going to be Jonathan Edwards, we're not all going to be Billy Graham's. We're not all, all, all going to be Susanna Wesley's. We all have different potential in the Christian life. This parable makes it abundantly clear. The first servant was profitable with five talents. The second servant only had two talents. Jesus doesn't beat him up and say, hey, this guy's got five, you've got two. What gives here, bro? No, the problem is the last servant had no talents. He had no profits at all. And so just to make this really clear, he wasn't thrown into hell because he bore low fruit. He was thrown into hell because he bore no fruit. Zero, zip, zilch. It wasn't because, you know what, you're not a Katie Davis. How can I let you into Kevin? It wasn't about that at all. The fact that he never bore any fruit at all in his life proved he wasn't a genuine Christian. So true faith always demonstrates itself in the life of a believer by a willingness to bear fruit. And, and in this text, we see risky, risky endeavors of obedience. Faith causes us to take risks out of obedience for the kingdom of God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, 
is like the chapter in the Bible that speaks about faith. It's awesome because Hebrews chapter 11, it's called actually, people call it the hero's hall of faith. It's all these people from the Old Testament that live lives of faith and they were mighty people. And what's interesting is when you read through Hebrews chapter 11, whenever you see faith, there's another theme that you see paralleled with faith. And you know what it is? It's risk. It's risk. Everywhere you see faith in Hebrews 11, you also see risk. Because in Hebrews 11, faith and risk are like conjoined twins, okay? Whenever you see faith, there's risk. If you see risk, there's faith. Because in Hebrews 11, it lists all these Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs who live lives of radical risk for God, and it demonstrated their faith. For example, Abel's the first guy mentioned. And it says, by faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain. Stop right there. What's it saying there? It's saying this. Abel took a risk for God. It was risky for Abel to offer a greater sacrifice than his brother Cain. That was risky of him to do that. In fact, I I think many of us know the story. Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve, And uh, on the appointed day, they were to come and offer their sacrifices at the altar. God had made it very clear what he expected. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Abel brought a lamb. Cain, his brother, brought a fruit salad. Okay? And I'm sure when they were walking to the altar, I'm sure Abel was thinking to himself, looking at his brother with his bowl of whole foods, fruit salad, he's thinking, this is not going to be good, bro. Because I'm walking in with my lamb, I'm going to walk in and offer that, and when I walk out, my brother's coming in with his sinful sacrifice, because he's offering whatever he wants, and this is not going to go good for him. That very fact of obedience was a risk on Abel's part, because his life of obedience was a repudiation on Cain's. It was a risk. And as we all know, Cain, he didn't like it. His sacrifice was rejected, and so he killed Abel. Abel took a risk, Hebrews 11 says. The very next person mentioned is Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, with reverent regard, constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. Again, what's it saying here about the life of Noah? Think about Noah building that ark. What's that saying about Noah? It's saying this. Noah acted on things he couldn't even see. Noah took a risk for God. You know, the Bible says Noah preached for years while he's building this ark in his front yard. And he's telling everyone, listen, hey, the wrath of God is coming. And uh, it's going to come in the form of a storm. And we're all going to be swept away. You can enter this ark and live or you can disbelieve and die. He preached that message for years. And guess what? That was a risk because if the rain never comes because they'd never seen rain before, it was a brand new phenomenon. If the rains never came and the floods never came, guess what? Noah is just another religious quack with a 500-foot ark in his front yard. That's what it is. They have a couple of those in Arkansas, by the way. Um, It's just up on blocks in his front yard. He's like, well, I took a risk and it didn't work out. That was a risk for Noah to do that. Noah took a risk for God. Next person, Abraham. Listen to this one. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. And he, this this is amazing. He went out without understanding where he was going. Amen. This is the biggest risk of all. Some of you are like, how is that the biggest risk? Listen, 
if you tell your wife you're going to move away from your in-laws and you don't know where you're going, right? He left everything that he knew and he said, listen, honey, God says we got to go. We got to get out of here. Where are we going? I don't know yet. God hasn't told me, okay? Unless you're a NASCAR fan who lives in a Winnebago and follows the racers around all year, that's not cool to have no destination in mind when you leave your hometown. This was the biggest risk of all, I think, Abraham stepped out in faith. Hebrews 11 gives example after example after example of people who live lives of faith and they took mighty risks for God because faith and risk are conjoined twins. Where you see one, you see the other. And so true, genuine faith in Christ, it always has an element of risk to it, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If the world is in hostility with the ways of God and and the world hates God, that's what the Bible says. Then, then whenever we step out in faith, there's going to be an element of risk to that. I mean, if, if you decide to go all in for Jesus, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to stop sleeping with my boyfriend out of love for my Savior. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put the kibosh on this, this intimacy outside of marriage. If you do that, you are running the risk, right, of that relationship. If you're trying to pull it out of sin, out of obedience to Christ, that's a risk. You could lose it. If you step out in faith and you say, I've got to talk to this brother in Christ, the path he's going down is not good. If you do that, you are running a risk of losing that relationship. If you stand up for the abused and the marginalized and those that have been run roughshod over, you run the risk of getting yourself in an awful lot of trouble because true, genuine faith puts you in the crosshairs of risk. So obedience to God always involves a risk. And listen, this parable is very clear. Jesus is not looking for a people that just sort of hang in there and wait for the second coming. He's coming back for a risk-taking people. And the reason that this servant is called wicked is because he bore no fruit whatsoever. Now, that was sort of all introduction. Because this, listen, this is where the parable takes an unexpected twist. In fact, what's coming up is the true purpose of this parable, because here's the question this morning. Everything I just said you knew before you got here. I need to bear fruit. I should be bearing fruit. Okay, I came to church. But here's the question, folks. Why didn't the servant do anything with his gifts, with the talent? Why did he just bury it in the ground and never do anything at all? We have to be so careful when answering that question, because It's very easy for us to assume, you know, this guy was just not devoted to God enough. He obviously didn't love God. He was a worldling. He just decided to be indifferent and live a life of ease and comfort, and he hated God. He was lazy. That's our default mode because verse 26 does say that Jesus called him lazy. And I would say this, friends. Jesus did indeed call him lazy in verse 26, but I want you to circle the word lazy for a second. Verse 26 is very important. Circle that word, highlight it, use your phone, however you do it. The word lazy here is a very, I cannot underestimate the importance of unlocking this passage because there's a couple different words in Greek for lazy. This specific word does not refer to a person that doesn't do anything because they're just loafing around on the couch and they're a couch potato. This word lazy refers to a person that doesn't act Because they are paralyzed with fear. Can you feel me? This particular word for lazy, it's not talking about the indifferent people. 
The people that are just like, they're totally indifferent to the call of God. Okay, whatever, I've got better things to do. This refers to a person that cannot move because they're immobilized by terror. In fact, I think the best way to sum up this word is, uh, is this sort of like deer in the headlights? You guys know the deer in the headlights phrase? You're driving at night. You can barely see it, right? It darts out in front of you on some country road, and like one of God's most amazing, powerful, agile creatures all of a sudden can't move, right? And he's stuck. Now, let me ask you a question. Why in the world can all of a sudden this deer, have, you guys have seen, those, a deer can leap like an eight-foot fence without even running. It can just walk up and go, boop. What in the world causes something so powerful and agile to all of a sudden freeze and then eventually get plowed over? What causes that? Fear. Fear. They're a deer in the headlights. They don't know what in the world's coming at them, and they're very scared. And that's the exact idea that we see here in this parable. This word lazy has the idea of a deer in the headlights. And so the reason this servant never did anything with the talent he was given is because he was paralyzed with fear. And because he was paralyzed with fear, he never, he never did anything with the talent. He was too afraid of not having enough profits to show to his master. And so basically, the reason this servant never bore any fruit was because he had a skewed view of the master. He had a skewed view, a wrong view of God. I mean, look again at verse 24. Look at what he says about the master. Master, look at this. Just imagine you talking to God this way. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Do do you realize what he's saying to God? He's saying, Master, I knew you were a real slave driver. And basically what you do is, is you're up in heaven sitting on your keister, And you're commanding all of us just to slave away for you. And then when you come down here, you know what you want? You don't just want your profits. You want their profits. You want to reap fields that you didn't even sow. You're not even responsible for them. You are corrupt. You exploit people. You're the big slave shop manager in the sky. That's what you, you run a slave sweatshop. And you whip us and you whip us and you whip us. And you expect us to produce so much. And you're so unjust and so fair that I was terrified. And I never did anything with the talent you gave me. You expected me to adopt six orphans and give 40% of my money away to missions, and you expected me to study the Bible three hours a day, and I was so terrified of not having enough fruit to show for my life when you came back that I just couldn't do anything at all. How many people does that describe today in Christianity? If we were honest, how many of us worry day after day after day Man, I just hope I have enough when he comes back. I hope, I, I hope I've been risking enough when he comes back. I hope I, I hope I have enough fruit to show for my life when he comes back. That was the heart of this servant. And that's why in verse 25 he says, and I was what? I was afraid. I was, af- I was so afraid to lose your money and not have enough fruit that I just, I went away and hid your talent in the ground. God, to this man, is the the big, angry ogre in the sky. God, to him, is the God who's just, he's never appeased. It's never enough. 
the risks are never big enough, the money is never enough to give to the church, the ministry is never enough, never enough. Say yes to everything. That was his view of God. And you see, there's like this definite contrast between the two types of servants. The first two guys, they're productive. They have an optimistic view of God. I mean, they're grateful. They're happy. Immediately, the text says, they take off and they start trading. They're not thinking about, man, what if I lose this money? They're trading. They know that God is a good God. And when God comes back, they say, Master, see, or literally in the Greek, behold, Look what I've got. There's no fear. They're not fearing, man, I hope he's not upset. I only made five talents profit. Man, I hope I'm not, hope I don't get, that's not their view at all. There's optimism. There's joy. There's not even an iota of them fearing that they're going to be counted as unworthy servants. That's not even on their mind. That's not jamming up their walk at all. All they can think of is fruit, fruit, fruit. As Lecrae said, I'm so secure in Jesus, all I want in life is fruit. I say that all the time because it's so true. But the wicked slave, man, totally different view of God. He's immobilized with fear because he's terrified of not having enough fruit to show for his life when the master returns. And so he lives his life thinking, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And it murdered fruitfulness in his life. Murdered it. Just to kind of show you that I'm not alone in these interpretations. This may be new for you if you're church folks. But Matthew Henry the Puritan said this. This servant's ill affection toward God arose from his false thoughts about God. And nothing is more unworthy of God, nor more hinders our service to Him than slavish fear. Thinking, I'm just a slave. He's whipping me. You're a son. You're a son and daughter of God if you're in Christ. But this has bondage and torment and is directly opposite to that entire love which the great commandment requires. Listen to this. This is the money quote. Hard thoughts of God drive us from God. And cramp us in his service. You want to jack your walk all up? Just focus on God as the unappeasable God who sits up in heaven and says, you ain't taking big enough risks for me, bro. You need to get out and get after it. You want to cramp your service up? View God as the big, angry ogre in the sky or listen to people that tell you that God is the big, angry ogre in the sky. That will cramp up our effectiveness for Christ. And the obedient service... Servants, they're fruitful because they're motivated by joy. They viewed God as as a giver. The wicked servant, he's hindered because he views God as a taker. And here's here's the point of this parable. Here's the entire point of this parable, okay? If you don't get anything else, please get this. Your fruitfulness and the risks that you are willing to take in the Christian life are directly related to this fact. Are you viewing God as a giver or a taker? Who is God to you? Is he someone that's ruthless and bloodthirsty and he's Kathy Lee Gifford and he's a sweatshop owner and it's never enough and it's never enough and it's never enough and it's more and more, do better, try harder? Or is God a gracious giver who paid it all and did it all on your behalf? 
Are you viewing God as a giver or a taker? And here's the deal, friends. I think the reason the American church is so lethargic in good works, I think they're, they're so lethargic in the Great Commission and taking risks and doing anything that would resemble genuine Christianity, I think the reason is not because they have like this, they lack a fear of God. I think it's because they fear God so much they're, they're immobilized. They can't do anything at all. They view God as a taker. And it absolutely murders their fruitfulness for God. You know, my, my wife and I, we, we're open books here. And, and, and we seek to really share where we've grown and, and things that we've learned in the Christian life. And, you know, my wife and I have been very open about this particular example in our home group. But, but I've shared with some of you, too. When, when, I first, when I first met my wife, Lauren... I like, she stole my heart immediately because she is the classiest, most compassionate, um, just sweetest human being I've ever known, ever, hands down. But one of the things that really, I think, concerned me the most about my wife when I first met her and started talking to her was that when we would talk about the Bible or we talk about God, um, there was like, there was almost like a lack of zeal to read the Bible or to talk about the Bible or, you know, even to engage in service overly. I mean, she's tremendously gifted, but when we first met, there was something that always concerned me. I was always like, man, how come she's not very diligent to read? I, I would think that, that a girl that grew up in church her whole life would really, really want to read the Bible more. So the, I, had this, I had this concern, this person that I, that I grew to love, I had this also concern, and I thought to myself, you know what? I was young, I was stupid, I thought, when we get married, I'll, I'll fix all that, you know? I'll fix all that. You know the feeling. You know, it's like once she's married to me, we will go before the throne of God in tears. You know, before, you know, like you're going to be the one that's going to like rescue someone um, and, and reboot their spiritual life. And, and so we got married, and uh, the inconsistencies in her walk continued. I mean, she'd read the Bible one day, and then four days would go by, and we'd talk about, you know, doing ministry together. And it was almost like I was trying to push, 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 push. There wasn't a whole lot of zeal there. And I tried everything I could think of. I mean, I tried Bible reading plans. I mean, a hundred different those. I, I tried accountability, you know, coming home every day and I'm like, what did you read today? And tell me about it and write me a one-page critique. You know, it was like, I tried everything. I tried devotional books. I tried everything I could to, to like restart. Spray, spray some, uh, a little bit of guilt and shame on the carburetor and crank that sucker up again. Let's get that thing running, man. You know what I mean, bro? I thought, man, with the right accountability and the right discipline, we'll get this thing worked out. And it, it, it never got any better. And it, years went by, a couple years went by. I got so frustrated at one point, and this is, this is just us being open. I got so frustrated at one point that I just said, honey, I love you, but if I did not know you better, I would really wonder if you were a Christian. And the only reason I tell you that is because I, <laughs> because I'm an idiot, one. But two, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I've made in my life. But in my mind, I thought, I don't want to be the person that has blood on my hands because I haven't told someone the truth. All a man has is his conscience. And if you lose that, you have nothing. So I said this, and immediately that just crushed her more because not only was she not doing 
and living a zealous Christian life. Now she's even more frustrated because the person that's her one flesh is sort of like even questioning that. I did not know it at the time, but my wife was burned out. I had no idea. But she was burned out. Well, a turning point came. A turning point came in our marriage is about probably, I don't know, two or three years into our marriage when I began to see something I'd never paid attention to before. It had been there, but I just, it's like I didn't even realize it was there. And it was my wife's view of God was like really jacked up, like extremely skewed. And um, it, it was it's the kind of thing where like I would talk to her about how much God loves Christians and how much he loves us, and she would look at me like that deer in the headlight look, like, are, are, are you from the same planet? Because it's not the way that I'm feeling. And it was almost like I'd have to grab by the shoulders and be like, honey, God loves us. Do you know God loves us? Do you know God loves us? If he wasn't serious about loving us, why did he leave heaven and come to earth and die? But to her, it was like, it was this foreign message. And listen, it, I would say this. My wife's view of God was not her fault. It was not her fault. She grew up in church, led by men that I believe love God, love the Bible, seek to serve God, teach the Bible. They taught the gospel there. I thank God for that. But one thing that happens usually in churches, it happens in a lot of type of churches, all kinds of churches. One thing that happens is over time, churches sometimes leave the cross and what Jesus did and the Christ, and they start focusing almost exclusively on the Christian life. So they leave behind what did Jesus do, and they start talking about what would Jesus do all the time. And listen, the more I began to understand my wife, because and, 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 I didn't grow up in church, but the more I, under, I began to understand, you know, God, tell me about the God that you believe in, Lauren. It was like from the time that she was a kid, Sunday school, youth group, Bible study, counseling, women's group, Sunday sermon. It, it was almost like the emphasis wasn't on the Christ, it was on the Christian life. And it was almost like the cross was, it was there, but it was sort of like, it was always on modesty and practice this, do that, do this, do that. And I didn't know it. Over time, God's kind of like, Jeff, there's a connection there, bro. Get a clue, dude. Get a clue. Because I didn't know this at the time, but God began to reveal to me, my wife was not a false, con my wife was burned out because her whole entire life had been do better, try harder, do better, try harder. And you know what happened over time? This deep, deep sense of shame developed. Because listen, she's hearing all the time in all these different avenues and Bible studies and everything else, here's what you should be doing. But deep inside, she knows I'm not measuring up. And so what happens, you hear that for long enough and consistently enough, and what happens is this deep, deep shame develop where it's like, you know what, if God's never happy and it's never enough and, and I never read the Bible enough and I never do this enough and that, I'm never modest enough, then you know what, who wants to be around a God like that? Nobody. And Jesus came to die to get rid of all that. That's the funny thing, but... God began to reveal this to me, and, and it's, uh, we stopped like focusing on what would Jesus do, like he would read the Bible and you know, he would minister, and we started focusing on what did Jesus do. I mean, we, we changed the type of books that we order, we changed the type of devotional materials we go through in the morning, and, and a funny thing happened, an amazing thing happened. Her walk became transformed, absolutely, 
It became transformed. I mean, the more we focused on the cross and the more we focused on what Jesus did for us, all of a sudden fruit starts popping out everywhere. My wife starts going up to people in the public's parking lot and passing out, you know, cards to our church. I mean, now it's like when I get up, I have to find our devotional books because she's quarantined them all and she's like over in the corner studying God's word and she's in it and she's zealous and I don't have to ask her at all because she's so wrapped up in Jesus and what Jesus has done for her that all she wants to do is serve him. And God revealed something to me very important. I don't want you to miss this. Sometimes people who aren't as zealous as you think they are aren't unbelievers. Sometimes they're just burned out. They're just burned out. They go through their life thinking, I'm not measuring up, I'm not measuring up, I'm not measuring up. God's upset, God's upset. I didn't read enough, I didn't pray enough. Well, listen, if you think that God is always in a bad mood, you know, he's got type 2 diabetes and he's got low blood sugar. He's up in heaven like this. Like, what in the world do you want now, bro? How dare you pray five minutes? You know how long they pray in the third world? For an hour. I mean, who in the world wants to be around a God like that? Nobody. And thank God that's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is not a taker. He's not a ruthless taker. He's not a hard taskmaster. He's a giver. He's a giver, and this is what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. I mean, every other religion in the world, we give, God takes. I mean, every other religion in the world, God is supremely a taker. I mean, you got the Jehovah's Witnesses, they tell us, you know what, God, he wants your evangelism. You better go out every Saturday. Seventh-day Adventists tell us, you know what God wants? He wants you not to cut your grass on Saturdays and not watch any TV. That's what he wants. Muslims tell us God wants you to give him a jihad and a die in it. He wants you to go out and blow yourself up and kill innocent people. And you know what? Unfortunately, many wings of the church tell us that God wants you to do better and try harder. And you know what happens? Every other religion in the world other than Christianity, God says this, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. We give, he takes. That's every other religion. But listen, in Christianity, it's all different. It's all flip-flopped. Because in Christianity, God gives and we're the takers. It's crazy. That's why we come in and the symbol for Christianity is a cross, not an offering plate, right? I mean, we don't walk in and God's like shouting down from heaven, all right, empty your pockets, folks. You know, get it all out there. I want everything you got. No lint or anything either, you know. I want, you know what I'm saying? Chop, chop. We don't come in and, and hear about a God that just is this ruthless, bloodthirsty, never appease God in heaven who demands what we can't supply. We serve a God who left heaven to give us exactly what he needs from us, and that is Christ. That's a perfect substitute. That's a perfect sacrifice. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, he gave. He gave, baby. And Christianity is the only religion in the world where God is the giver. We're the takers. That's why John Owen said this. Can you go to the next slide? I missed that slide, actually. God will never grow tired of taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. Amen? God will never grow tired of taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. And listen, the first step in living a zealous, sold-out, risk-taking life is to remind yourself from the get-go that we're not saved by taking risks, we're saved by Jesus. 
We're saved by faith and faith alone. Faith in the gospel alone, that's where it starts. Because unless you start there, unless you start like the first two servants and you know that through faith in Christ, God will never come back and say, get out of my presence, you're unworthy. That will never happen to the child of God, ever. And we have to start there. Because unless you start with full assurance of your your salvation, unless you start and you're convinced that I'm saved by faith and faith alone, you will not be able to weather the trials when they come. If you are going through your Christian life wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Am I reading enough? Am I risking enough? You will lack strength for the battle. And we must begin, friends, and we must continually go back to, as Luther said, we must continually go back to the gospel and begin again. Every day we begin again at the foot of the cross. We remind ourselves, I'm not saved by taking risks. I'm saved by Jesus. And that is the very motivation, the very fuel to be risk-taking Christians And listen, if you placed your faith in Jesus this morning, God is not angry with you. He's not irritable with you. He's not a reluctant forgiver of you. For God so loved the world that he gave. God's love is what caused the cross. The cross did not secure God's love for us and make God love us. And now God's up in heaven saying, you know what? I wish I could reject you, but Jesus died for you, so now I'm stuck with you. God's love preceded the cross. And therefore, I want to pronounce absolution upon you and say, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, he's not angry with you. He's excited. He loves you. He can't wait to spend eternity with you. And and every sacrifice you make from the smallest to the biggest, he sees and he rejoices over. Because he rejoices over you. And when you see on the cross the master of all, God going all in, risking all for you, that will be the very fuel and motivation to live a life of risk and obedience to God.